morning, church. Um, just a heads up. Hi, Shane. Heads up, we're going to have three major scripture readings uh, that may not be on the screen today. It's been a rushed week. Thank you. I know you're praying for us. John's family was crazy sick this week, so everything just feels really rushed. But we're going to have a first big reading out of Ezekiel 34. The main scripture reading for this morning is out of John 10. And then later on, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to pre-mark your Bibles. Because not all of it will be on the screens. With that being said, uh, today we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We are going over the seven I Am statements of Christ. And those I Am statements, they reveal the deity of Christ. Because they are in agreement with how God revealed himself as the great I Am in the burning bush. God used that phrase. He tells Moses, and he goes, when Moses said, God, who do I tell you that sent me to the Israelites? He goes, tell them I am sent you. So when Jesus, through the Gospel of John, uses these I am statements, they carry great weight in revealing his deity. In John's Gospel, it's founded upon this idea that the Word, Jesus, God, became flesh or took on flesh. God has finally come at the appointed time to save his people. For the people of God, at the time of Christ, they were lost and in bondage, and they were being devoured from within and from without, devoured from without by the Romans and other political oppressors. But that, is not, that not really wasn't new. The people of God have been essentially oppressed since the beginning in the Garden of Eden when man rejected God. But we see it throughout the whole story of the Bible. The time comes when the rejection of God gets worse. The days of Samuel, the people go to Samuel and say, hey, we want a real king like the pagan nations around us. And God says to Samuel, you know, hear what they're saying. They're not rejecting you as their judge, Samuel. They're rejecting me as their king. And up until the time of Christ, the people of God were still rejecting their king. And everyone else was devouring the people. But what's really, what's really as awful is not that they were being devoured from without, oppressed by the world, is that they were being devoured from within by their own leaders, their own countrymen, shepherds of the flock, God calls them, and hear what the Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel, hundreds of years before the time of Christ, what God will do to save his people from these ravenous wolves that call themselves shepherds that are devouring his own people. It's Ezekiel 34. Again, this might not be on the screen, but Ezekiel 34 is a famous, famous chapter where God decries these false shepherds that are devouring his people. It's a little bit long, but hear and really feel what God is saying about how he feels when those who are claiming to be on the inside are wolves and devour his flock. Starting on verse 1, prophet Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, 
Surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And this is their come to Jesus moment. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I, the Lord God, will rescue my sheep from the mouths of the shepherds that they may not be food for them. Jump down to verse 15 if you're following along. This is a whole chapter dedicated to this. It carries great weight. I, God, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them my sheep in justice. Jump down to verse 22 if you're following along. I, God, I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between the sheep and sheep. And this is where it gets interesting. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, who, if you know your word, the scriptures, David's been dead a long time. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he, this David figure, he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord God. I have spoken. Keep that distinction in mind, what God just said. He says, I will be their shepherd, and this David figure will be their shepherd. This becomes very significant in our text this morning. So fast forward a couple hundred years. If you know your Bible, the exiles happen. The people of God are cast out of the land. They come back, all that stuff. And we get to the time of Christ, and the leaders or the shepherds of Israel at this point are the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. These are the ones who rule the synagogue. They rule the temple. And they are the ones who teach their own traditions rather than the truth. And these are these, these figures, these people, these shepherds of Israel. They are the ones throughout all the Gospels and the whole New Testament vigorously oppose our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the people that are the leaders of the people of God. And this, was, this is what leads us to this morning's I Am Statement of Christ. And our main point for this morning... Our main point for this morning is this, is that Jesus is the promised good shepherd that we just read about in Ezekiel. Jesus is the promised good shepherd. And if you can, and if you are willing, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We will be reading out of John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. And as we read what Jesus is about to say, I want you to be thinking about those things God just decried through Ezekiel about how he will be their shepherd, and he will send this figure, David. The word of the Lord says this, Jesus speaking, he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, He has a demon, and he's insane. Why do you listen to him? And others said, These are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, give us ears to hear, a heart to understand, and a willing spirit to obey. Glorify your Son this morning. For his name's sake, do great things. Amen. So our reading this morning out of John 10, the context is that Jesus had just performed a sign, a sign being a specific miracle for a specific purpose. He had just healed the man born blind, and this became the opportunity for Jesus to reveal to the Pharisees, the leaders of the synagogues, the the major adversaries of Christ, to reveal to them that they are the truly blind ones, the spiritually blind ones. They see without seeing, and they hear without hearing And they were missing the work of the Messiah. And ultimately, they were rejecting their one true king. And Jesus then accompanies this sign, this specific miracle for a specific purpose. He accompanies it and begins to talk to them with a dialogue. As John's gospel escalates, the miracles, these specific signs, eventually get accompanied by dialogues. And about midway through the gospel. And this is no exception. So Jesus begins to talk to them and to reveal to them in two consecutive I am statements that their blindness is what makes them false shepherds and that Jesus alone is the true shepherd of Israel, the true leader of the people of God. For the Pharisees lacked the care and compassion of a true shepherd. As we just read, they fit the description that Ezekiel talked about. And we will see this as we go through these statements. If they knew the word, which Jesus says throughout the Gospels, like the Pharisees know the Bible, when Jesus says statements like this, this should resonate deeply that he, they know he's talking about them in this way. And this leads us to our first preaching point. Jesus is the promised good shepherd because he truly cares for the sheep. The care of the good shepherd. Verses 11 through 13. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This first I am statement, our first preaching point, has two major emphasis to it. The first one is that by even, by even calling himself good, Jesus here is affirming his deity. Uh, each synoptic gospel, synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the ones that you read and you're like, I know I've read this story three different times in three different ways. Those are the synoptics. 
they all have a similar story where a person or someone comes to Jesus and they, they ask him about this being good. They say, good teacher, tell us blank or blank. And Jesus' response in every gospel is something along these lines. He goes, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, he is subtly hinting at the reality that, yes, I am good because I am God and God is the good shepherd. As we just read in Ezekiel, God will be the true shepherd of his flock. So by Jesus calling himself good, he's claiming divinity here. That's why this I am statement carries great weight. And this, it also piggybacks on the reality, as we read in Ezekiel, how do we then reconcile that David, this figure of David, would also be the shepherd of the sheep, which, side note, would then become our Christian teaching of the incarnation. God is fully the shepherd, and this human figure are fully the shepherd. And as Christians, we hang our hat on the reality that Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God, fully human, fully divine in one person. This kind of statement is why we affirm the necessity that Jesus really is fully God and really is fully man, because we can't ignore the prophecy behind it. But the second focus, and I think what the normal reading of this carries, is that this first I am statement about being the good shepherd, it serves as an illustration to contrast between the care of a true shepherd compared to those who are just in it for gain. Or what, if you're a fan of the King James Version, the word, what they call a hireling, the hired hands. I know we have farmers in this place that they pay hired hands. This is the type of language when you pay someone to do work for you. They don't really have great interest in the success of your company. They just want a paycheck. Jesus is basically saying, you Pharisees, you're like that. And he compares them greatly. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hireling only loves his own life. The good shepherd will do whatever it takes to protect the sheep, but the hireling flees when there's danger. The good shepherd really, genuinely cares for the sheep, but the hireling only cares for himself. You can see how Jesus is applying this to their faith. I'm curious what they were really thinking when he's explaining this to them, when he's saying these things. We don't see their response other than the end, but you got to know, like when he's saying that, they know they're speaking. He's speaking against them. But these Pharisees, being false shepherds, they fit the description in Ezekiel's prophecy. The Pharisees, if you know the Gospels, they devoured the people of God. They loved wealth and status over the truth and pure doctrine and pure worship God had called them to lead the people in. So much so... Near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, in his last days in Jerusalem, Matthew 23 is the famous chapter where Jesus just lets loose on the Pharisees and the scribes. He just decries them for who they are, what they're doing, and the judgment they're going to face from the living God for what they've done. It says this in Matthew 23, just in a few readings. He goes, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, For you neither enter yourselves, nor you allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, and these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. You blind guides, you'll strain out a gnat, and you'll still swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. 
fascinating Jesus calls them blind when in John's gospel we just read he healed the man born blind. That is their problem. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all these shepherds of Israel, they are spiritually blind and are therefore false shepherds of the sheep. They care nothing for the sheep, nothing for the people of God, other than for their own gain, prestige, and status. And God does not take kindly to that. And this is in stark contrast to the care and tender mercy our Lord Jesus has on his people. Observe through the Gospels, but Psalm 23 famously encapsulates the shepherding heart God has for his people, for you and for me. The whole 23rd Psalm, think of this now with Jesus in mind. The Lord, Jesus, Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Jesus restores my soul. Jesus leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And whose name do we pray in? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you, Jesus. You are with me. Jesus, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you, Jesus, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you, Jesus, anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Jesus forever. Church, Christian, this is our good shepherd, Jesus, and how he cares for us. And as far as application goes of Scripture, how this speaks to the heart, i got to ask yourself, and you need to ask yourself this one thing, does your relationship with Christ embody this psalm? Do you really believe that Jesus cares for you, your family, and his church? Do you really, when it comes down to it, do you think Jesus is a good shepherd or do you think, is he good at what he does or is Jesus careless with his sheep? Do you think Jesus does a good job leading the church? I ask you these things because what you think about the good shepherd's care for you and for his people, the church, it matters. It impacts your everything. Because when a soul can't see or recognize the good shepherd's care and protection, when our eyes get fixed on the problems of life, doubts become reality. You would start asking questions. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this just happened to me. I guess Jesus doesn't really care about me. And then that snowballs. gets bigger and bigger and becomes, well, I guess he doesn't care about my life and I guess he doesn't care about my sufferings and I guess he probably doesn't care about my marriage because we're having problems and I guess he doesn't care about my job and my conflict with my boss and I guess he doesn't care about my kids and so on and so on. It doesn't stop. And then it ultimately becomes a question of, well, I guess he doesn't really care about my obedience either. We may never articulate it like that, but it's a causal effect. What you think about the care, the personal care and shepherding, the leading and guiding and protecting of Jesus in your life affects everything else. And eventually, the soul that's in that condition, they'll slowly stop praying and they'll slowly stop reading their Bible. Maybe not in that order, but... And eventually, they'll wander from the church. They'll wander from the sheep pen. And they'll ignore the call and they'll ignore the warning of the great shepherd who's still crying out after them. And then that sheep becomes prey for the wolves and predators of this present evil age. Yet even in our darkest night, the good shepherd is still there, working on our hearts, calling out to us through his Holy Spirit, 
the internal call of the good shepherd in you and me if you're a believer. He's calling to you through the scriptures. The good shepherd speaks through the scriptures. And the good shepherd uses as a means his church to reach us, you and me, to build one another up and call us back into the sheepfold. And Jesus, this good shepherd, he is faithful to do whatever it takes in your life, Christian, to bring you back into the safety of his sheep pen, even if it means your temporary suffering. I don't doubt if we surveyed people you know, or maybe your own life, when you walk away from the Lord for a season in life, it's pretty miserable. And deep down, you try to deny it. You maybe even try to rationalize your sin. You probably even enjoy it. That's okay to admit sin's pleasurable. The Bible says that. But somewhere deep down, you are the most miserable offender because you know the truth, you know who Jesus is, and yet you're still turning away from the good shepherd. And God is faithful to use the pains of this life to shepherd you back to him. He is faithful to do this. Jesus is a good shepherd, and he promises to care for you, maybe not in ways we like, maybe not in ways we understand, but who is a sheep to argue with the shepherd. So what you think about the care of Jesus in your life, in your family, and how Jesus runs the church, I'm not saying humans in the church leadership are infallible or you're not, nothing like that, but I mean in general, if you step back and saw all these Christians being killed, do you still think Jesus is doing a good job? Questions like that matter. Your picture of Christ in your mind, in your heart, matter. And we don't want to have an idol of Jesus. We want the real Jesus because we're called to know him. And Jesus, this care of the good shepherd, him just in general being the good shepherd, he, was, he does this because he was commissioned by the Father to do this. He doesn't take this honor on himself. Jesus doesn't impose himself being the shepherd on us. It's because God the Father commissioned the Son to be the shepherd of the sheep, which is our next preaching point, the commission of the good shepherd, verses 14 through 18. Jesus, in a parallel, he says this twice in a row, so you know it carries great significance when you see a phrase repeated in Scripture. He again says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge or commission I have received from my Father. So Jesus now, he expands upon his first statement about caring for the sheep. He's transitioning to his overall commission as the good shepherd, why he does what he does, where it came from. And there are three key things in this second portion of the I am statement. First, a part of Jesus' commission or his job to be the good shepherd is that he doesn't only care for the sheep and he doesn't only protect us from the wolves, but he is to know all the sheep in a very personal and intimate way. And Jesus compares this personal knowing and being known by his sheep to the way that he knows his heavenly Father, which according to the Gospels, Jesus and the Father are in perfect love and harmony. The Son knows and loves and obeys the Father perfectly, and the Father knows and loves the Son perfectly. Their relationship is without fault. 
And this is how you and I, Christians, how we are known by Jesus and how we are to know him back. And I really want you to grasp this as best as we can today. Jesus knows you. I mean, in a, in a day and an age where we want to find the unique self, the express self, all that type of nonsense talk, we don't, I don't should be belittling anybody, but we're always in search for the, the authentic self. Jesus knows you, Christian. He knows you. The Good Shepherd knows every part of your heart and life, every desire you have, every thought in your heart, every hair on your head. He knows everything about you the good, the bad, the ugly and sinful and the beautiful. He knows everything about you. And he still chooses to love you because he chooses to love you. And that should bring great relief. Jesus chooses to love you because he chooses to love you, which is the great answer of the scripture. If anybody says, why does Jesus love me? The answer is because he chooses to. Period. Jesus chooses to love you. It's not what you've done or what you failed to do or what you're going to do. It's because he chooses to. And you, Christian, you are to know him back. Like he says, my sheep know me and I know them, just like my father and I know each other. You are to truly know this Jesus, this good shepherd. And hence, this is the reason why the elders of the church, Jesus has appointed under shepherds. This is why we do what we do. This is why we constantly pray for you all to fall more in love and know this good shepherd. And we do this by we praying for you all. We pray for you to be in the scriptures. We pray that's a primary way to know Christ. We, we want to know him through our songs and our worships. The songs we sing reveal who he is to us. We want you to know him through the sacraments. Like when you take communion, are you really having a moment in knowing Christ better? And I want, we want you to know him through the preaching of the word, why we do what we do, our entire church life, what we do as a church, what you do as a Christian is so you know this Jesus better, to love him, know him, and obey him better. So when elders or deacons or anybody call and visit you or a Christian friend, it's not to spy on you or be in attendance police. It's because... The ways I just described are God's prescribed ways in the scriptures for you to know the Son. I tell, I'll use it a thousand times. You can't sit under a tree and ask Jesus to know Jesus and then walk away knowing Jesus better. That's not how the Bible says we get to know the Son. It's through the Word. It's through the sacrament. It's through worship. It's through Christian fellowship. These are the ways the Bible describes spiritual disciplines. This is how we know Jesus better real, tangible ways. Because, guys, there is no Christian life separate from the church. You ever heard someone say, I love Jesus, but I hate church? That person, whether accidentally or ignorantly or whatever, they are blaspheming. Because to hate the church is to hate the body of Christ. How can you claim to hate Jesus' body and yet love him? And that makes no sense. It's a split mind. And this leads us to our second and third emphasis in the second I am statement. So Jesus knows the sheep intimately, and they are to know him back intimately. And there is to be one flock and one shepherd. That's the second emphasis in this second I am statement. This thing, this one flock, it's called the church. The statement he makes about other sheep is ultimately referring to the Gentiles. If you know the unfolding of the New Testament, this is a big deal. 
non-Jews are hearing about this Christ Messiah, and they respond. They get saved, and it causes problems in the early church. What do we do with all these others? What do we do with all these non-Jews who are turning to our Messiah? And post-Pentecost, when the Spirit is given, the Scriptures unfold, and people start really to grab the reality, like, oh, they are called to be heirs with us. They are a part of this thing. So Gentiles, non-Jews, most of us in this room... When we come to accept Christ, it's a big deal. And this plan to have one people, one flock, one shepherd, according to the New Testament epistles, as truth unfolds, specifically the book of Ephesians, this thing called the church, it was a mystery that was hidden away until the time of Jesus. And I want you to listen carefully. Hear how the Apostle Paul describes this thing called the church, what we're doing right now, and how this thing called the church is a total game changer for the course of human history and the end of this age. Ephesians 2, 12 through 22. It's a little long, but really hear what he's trying to say that what God's plan is for taking Jews and Gentiles and making them into one people. Paul says, verse 12, he goes, Remember that you, you Gentiles, you non-Jews, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the people of God, and you are strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and you are without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you Gentiles, who were once far away, once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, he himself, is our peace, who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles. That language, he takes both these groups So Jesus said, my other sheep, and he makes them into one flock. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, the old covenant. Jesus' death gets rid of that stuff. That he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So no longer is it just about this Jews and the Israelites or the Gentiles out there, he goes, no, no, we're we're new thing. We're, We're making them into one thing now. We're merging companies. So making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being jointed together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Okay, church, a lot was just said in that short paragraph, but I think the takeaway is that this thing called the church, what we're doing right now and what's been going on for the last 2,000 years, it's not something to be taken lightly because to be a part of this thing called the church is to mean that you are one of, now one of God's chosen people. And we are the literal, as we just read, the church is the literal embodiment of God's presence on the earth because he said the spirit of God dwells in the people of God and God's presence is in the people of God 
Which means right now, what we are doing is a supernatural thing. And right now, even if you can't feel it, if the Bible is true, God is literally present with us in this room right now. Do you believe that? Do you, do you take that weight seriously? It should cause us to fear and rejoice and shake and clap and be terrified all at the same time, knowing that God is literally in our midst. When you read the Old Covenant, where is God at? He's mainly in the temple, right? Isolated, and only the high priest gets to go in, but his presence is still there to a degree in his people. The New Covenant blows that paradigm out the water, and God says, I fully inhabit my people now wherever they're at. And when you gather together, something special happens. The church, when we call ourselves the body of Christ, we really do mean that. We are the manifestation of God's presence and spirit. However you want to word that, and I don't always articulate that well, but what we're doing this morning is literally God's presence. Because he lives in you, Christian, the Holy Spirit does, and he lives in me. And supernatural things happen when we're together. The church is a big deal. God is literally present with us right now because of who and what we are. His chosen people in Christ Jesus, the good shepherd, the one flock. And this, leading to our third emphasis, was not possible until the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus, he was describing, he goes, I'm going to have one flock and one shepherd, and I lay down my life for these things. That's the best way you can say it. The church does not exist, could not exist. This unique people where God's presence is not hindered could not exist until Jesus paid for it with his own life. This thing called the church, this one flock and this one shepherd, cost the good shepherd his very life. So what we're doing today for the last 2,000 years in Christian history is we carry on a supernatural legacy of being God's presence on the earth. Which, that's what Peter means, as a side note, when Peter says you are the priesthood of believers, we are literally intermediaries between this dark and fallen world and the Lord God. That is what we are. We are essentially the go-betweeners for people. That is what Christians do. We bring the divine to the lost. That's the Great Commission. That's what it means to be a priest of Jesus the priesthood of believers, you bring the gospel, this great news, to a fallen and dark world. So different language is used across the scripture to describe this reality. But if you are in Christ, you are God's, part of God's presence on the world, in the world. And this one flock, one people, as we said, it cost the one good shepherd his life. And it was God the Father's will for it to happen like this. There was no other way. If the church could exist in past generations before Christ came, it would have already happened. It had to happen this way. But the Pharisees, the spiritually blind ones, the false shepherds, they could not grasp or understand what was happening. And that leads us to our last and short preaching point, the conclusion concerning the good shepherd Jesus. It says there was division again among the Jews because of these words, the things Jesus is talking about, being the good shepherd. And many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why are you listening to this guy? And others said, these are not the words of the one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They saw this, they experienced it, and they could not come to any real conclusion on who this Jesus was, who this good shepherd was. They were spiritually blind and lost, and they were at an impasse. And this struggle still happens today. 
still happens when you talk to Muslims about Jesus, when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses about the real Jesus or Mormons. It happens all, or even your lost friends and family, or maybe some of you today. You can word this question a thousand different ways, but it really comes down to this, the pivotal question that Christians ask in our Great Commission command. When we ask people, essentially, who do you say Jesus is? Is he really who he says he is? Is he, is he, really, who, is he really the Lord? Is he really the good shepherd? Is Jesus true? You can word it a thousand different ways, but the answer is still required. Is Jesus who he says he is? And did he really do what he said he did? And did his death really pay for sins? Those types of questions. The struggle still happens today, and maybe that's you now. Maybe you're sitting, whether online, in person, wherever. Maybe you still have not made a great conclusion, like these people in the scriptures, who Jesus really is, and you're still, still not sure. But as an ambassador for Christ, I urge you, I, I'll even beg you, I beg you, please trust the good shepherd. Your very life depends on it. Because outside of this good shepherd, there is only death and there is only darkness. Save yourself from this corrupt generation is what Peter told the Jews. And they could not receive it. I pray your fate is not like that. And for those who are in Christ this morning, are you participating in bringing other people into the fold? When's the last time? Not to guilt or shame anybody, but is your life as a sheep of Christ, is it a is great commission driven? Or are you content with just being a simple sheep? And I don't mean that to be rude or offensive, but to really be a part of the sheep is to ache for those who are outside of the flock and to pray for them to come in because we know what's going to happen to those who are outside of the flock of Jesus Christ, outside of the church. I don't just mean church membership. I mean being in Christ, trusting who he is and what he's done. We're going to have an open time of altar. If you need to pray for someone lost that you know, please do that. If you need to be prayed with down here, the altar will be open. But let's not waste this time. Let's pray for someone lost. I know you know somebody who's lost right now. If, and I'll leave this one thought, and I'll, I've said it a thousand times, I'll say it again. If you and I ever experienced, but even but like a second of hell, we would never, ever joke about it again, and we would never wish about it, or wish it on our worst enemies. We wouldn't even want Hitler or the worst of the worst to go to that place if we really knew how awful the wrath of God is. And our Jesus, Good Shepherd, faced that for us so we could be forgiven. The altar's gonna be open. Please pray for someone lost. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Jesus, that you are our good shepherd. Lead us, guide us, help us ache for those who are outside of your flock as you ached for those who are not in the pen yet, who are not born again, who have not trusted in you. And you walked with the least of these and we're not ashamed to call them your brothers and sisters. What you've done for us, I pray that you would help us carry the great commission forward as your presence on the earth. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who enables us to love you, obey you, and do the great commission. Send us not out on our own, Jesus. Send your spirit with us. Help us do great things for your name's sake and for your glory. And even now, meet us where we're at. We ask these in your name, Father.